Hey everyone, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is our 82nd episode. Brian here, and Dan is with me once again. Hey Brian, happy to be back. Yes, we're here on, uh, what is this? May 9th, and uh, we're in the thick of springtime. Although we've had some, some weird weather. Some days it's 40 degrees, some days it's 80 degrees. Yeah, absolutely. I- my brother got married during the pandemic about two years ago and just had a celebration now where he could invite friends and family and stuff. And they reserved this really nice venue, like right along a little river or reservoir or something. And it was so windy and cold, even though it was May. It was like 45 degrees and blustery. But yeah, it's just I guess that's springtime, you know, in a temperate climate. One day it's 70, one day it's 40. Right. And as always, guys, gals, we've brought a movie to discuss. A film. Yes, if you will. That's what we got in the name of our show. It's not a movie podcast. Uh, And indeed, this film has some credentials. It did win Best Picture because it is the musical Chicago, adapted to film in 2002 by director Rob Marshall. Had you seen this one prior to watching it for the podcast, Dan? I had seen clips of a couple of the musical numbers on YouTube. I mentioned last week that I've watched my fair share of musical numbers for movies I haven't seen online. It's just something I do every now and then. And this is one where I had stumbled across a couple of them, but never seen the full movie and really didn't know anything about it except that female prisoners were involved. Right. And watching music video clips clips from the film of music numbers that's how i became aware of it too uh i mean i i kind of remember actually back in 2002 when it won the oscar that being one of like the first years that i watched a chunk of the ceremony Uh, i remember the next year was when return of the king won best picture and i thought that was cool but i didn't really have my attention turned towards this movie until I think 2010 when the Nostalgia Critic did a video where he was talking about, I think it was villain songs in movies. And he did a whole bit about Cell Block Tango, which I think is probably the most iconic music number in this show. And uh, I have some pluses and minuses to that outsized reputation it's received. Um, but we'll, we'll get there. But seeing that clip and the discussion of it was what uh, brought it to my attention. And then finally, a couple years ago, I got around to watching it. And I had some things I wanted to talk about. It, it stuck out to me. And uh, that's why we're here tonight. That and loyal listeners will remember last week we talked about favorite music numbers from movies. Uh, the one I highlighted from this one was They Both Reached for the Gun. And we're, we'll be talking about that, too. Awesome. I'm excited. So this movie's actually got a pretty long pedigree. The story of Chicago goes back almost 100 years. Because it originated as a play written by Maureen Dallas Watkins. 
who was a theater student at Yale when she wrote the play. She had previously worked briefly as a court reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And during the eight months she worked there, she covered two murder cases with female defendants. So the, the people accused of murder were women. And in her opinion, they were guilty. But because they had American Idol style sob stories, they both were acquitted. And uh, these were the cases of Beulah Annan and Belva Gertner. Great 1920s names. Yeah, they got sexier names for the movie. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, even for the play, because actually the, the play, it seems like, stays pretty accurate and pretty intact, uh, despite being more than a century old. Almost a century old. 1926. But uh, Beulah Annan was the inspiration for Roxy Hart, who's played by Renee Zellweger in the movie. Vanessa from B-Movie, as one LinkedIn reviewer called her. <laughs> and Catherine Zeta-Jones as Velma Kelly, uh, the character inspired by Belva Gertner. Now, one thing I was surprised by, actually, the first time I watched this movie was that Catherine Zeta-Jones is not the main character. Like, from what I knew about it tangentially, the marketing and the poster, I just assumed that it was, like, all about Catherine Zeta-Jones. Right. She got the Oscar. She got a lot of the buzz, for sure. For example, you look up on Letterboxd, that most movies have a little banner that goes across the top. And the banner for Chicago, it doesn't even have Renee Zellweger in it, but it's got, like, a bright spotlight on Catherine Zeta-Jones. So, yeah. Yeah, kind of funny. Uh, but in this original story by Dallas Watkins, it was a satire, and it, it shined kind of a garish negative light on this age, where if you got the right lawyer and the right spin doctor, you can get away with murder. There's a reporter character named Mary Sunshine, who is kind of Watkins's caricature of her fellow woman reporters who uh in her opinion would tell sob stories they were called sob sisters pejoratively that they'd uh, come up with these tearjerker angles with which to portray the female defendants even if it seemed pretty likely that they killed who they were accused of killing oh interesting and then this story was a Adapted from the 26 play into a 1927 silent film by Cecil B. DeMille. Later on, it got a 1942 adaptation called Roxy Hart, and it starred Ginger Rogers. And then it was turned into a stage musical in 1975 by Bob Fosse, which was notably after the death of Maureen Dallas Watkins, when he was able to grab up the rights. Oh, okay, yeah. And then, yes, finally in 2002, we got the film adaptation. This was actually the directorial debut of Rob Marshall, at least as far as features go. And it won six Oscars. So it picked up Best Sound, Best Editing, Best Costume Design, Best Art Direction, Best Supporting Actress for Catherine Zeta-Jones, as you said, and Best Picture. It was the first musical to win best picture since oliver in the 60s wow i didn't realize there was that long a gap 
I guess there still hasn't been that many. Do you know, has there been any musicals since then that one? I don't think so. I remember Les Miserables with Hugh Jackman was nominated, but it didn't win. Mm. La La Land almost won. That's right. It won for three minutes. Got really close. As oft discussed on this pod. Yes. Never forget La La Land. Pour one out for La La Land. <laughs> Undersung, underappreciated. <laughs> yes. That hidden gem of a film. We're keeping its story alive. So one thing I read about the production of this is that although the original stage musical was in the 70s kind of coincident with the rise in reality tv and like women pop stars and stuff in the uh late 20th century there was a big broadway revival of the number play came back in style so even though to me it would be kind of odd that there would be a 27 year gap 1975 when it was a stage musical until a 2002 film but I think there were some revivals in the midst of that. Yeah, most likely. And for what it's worth, you know, 1926 works entered the public domain in January of this year. So if you want to publish your Roxy Velma slash fic or your Billy Flynn Amos Hart slash fic, you just go right ahead. Plaster that on your newsstand. I want to do a Ferris Bueller's Day Off crossover with Beulah Annan. <laughs> Beulah Beulah That was the woman who inspired Roxy Oh, they remember, Dan We, I Presumably that's still in there Yeah, no, I mean uh, Beulah Annan is A strange enough name that I suppose Even if we said it, you know, four minutes ago It would still be fresh on the brain So, <laughs> My number one connection with the name Beulah Is in a Goofy movie when they play the Chuck E. Cheese ripoff song, or I guess it's actually probably more an homage to Rock of Fire Explosion, the uh, Lester's Possum Park. There's a, there's a whole number that they do. It's like, it's surprisingly long. It's like two minutes. And in between the, I think it's the first verse in the chorus, or maybe the chorus in the second verse, a character in the background shouts, skin that cat, Beulah. And so that I think one of the characters in the Lester's Possum Park must be named Beulah with the propensity for eating roadkill. <laughs> a great part of the Rock of Fire legacy. And something I've wondered is whether there's more or less of an appeal to a band composed of anthropomorphic animals when all of civilization is anthropomorphic animals. Interesting. I never thought about it from that angle. At that point, it's just like a fake person, you know? It's like er Bert and Ernie. Yeah, it's just like a regular human band, yeah. It's like a robot Frank Sinatra. Hitting you with the the deep introspection here. <laughs> but are we ready to tell the story of the film? Sure. All right, so this kicks off pretty close to the time it was originally written, because it's set in 1924 in Chicago, as one might expect. And it opens with our protagonist, who is Renee Zellweger as Roxy Hart, she is a chorus girl who's looking to climb and become more famous. She wants to make it in show business. And she's at a performance by more established performer Velma Kelly, a.k.a. Catherine Zeta-Jones. And uh, even though Velma Kelly typically performs as part of a sister act, and that's what everybody's there to see, she's there performing solo, mysteriously. 
but Roxy is more focused at the moment on the affair that she's having with Fred Casely, a furniture salesman. The first time I watched this, I hadn't watched The Wire. But this guy is Jimmy McNulty from The Wire. Right. Yeah, that's the main thing I know him from. Also worth noting, I think he was the star. So this actor is named Dominic West. I think he was the star of the prestige drama called The Affair, which was about, yeah, like a intramarital, intermar- what is it, intramarital affair? How do you say that? I think it's extramarital. Extramarital, that's the word. <laughs> I think intramarital is the kind of affair you're supposed to have. Int- yeah, that that point it's not an affair. Uh, extramarital affair. And so I guess he has a type that, like, he's he's been uh, typecast at this point. <laughs> that's kind of funny. But he has promised to introduce Roxy to the theater manager. He says he's got connections. So they go off and have their tryst just as the police are busting in to arrest Velma Kelly. Apparently she's just murdered her sister and husband because she caught them in flagrante delicto. So I have to say the opening of this movie... There's a lot popping off the screen at you, but I found it fairly incoherent. Like, I really thought it took me like three scenes to process that Renee Zellweger was not the sister because the way that it's shot is we see, like you said, Velma Kelly, is that her name? Velma Kelly, Catherine Zeta-Jones doing her show with like a missing sister and then like a longing look for Renee Zellweger looking up at the stage. And then I was just like, okay. They're sisters, but why isn't she up there? Because it made me... What's the, the rule where you see something and you put something in its place? Oh, right. Kuleshov. Yeah, I, I Kuleshoved that she was the sister. So it, it took me a while to get back on the, the track here. I can see that. There's definitely parts that fall into place as you go. Because, like, I didn't place the the Casely... What what all was going on with Casely uh, until we, we learned some more. Because... So Velma's just been arrested, and we jump ahead in time a couple weeks, and Roxy's again with Casely, and saying, hey, you know, when you said you'd introduce me to that manager guy, you, you still haven't done that, and it's been a little while, so maybe you should do that. And he says that he just made that up so that he could have sex with her. And that doesn't go over well. Not a, not a good thing to just say bluntly out of the blue. So she grabs a gun out of the dresser drawer and she shoots him. So Jimmy McNulty's dead. Yeah. In The Wire, he's the one solving these murders. Here, he's the victim of them. Right. At first, Roxy convinces her husband, Amos, to take the blame. And so in the next scene, we've got the police there standing in the room over the body. And Amos is explaining, oh, he was a burglar. And I killed him in self-defense. And who plays this husband, Dan? Yeah, so before I answer that question, there's a YouTube video of a group of friends, and one of the friends really hates Kevin Spacey. So Kevin Spacey is not who plays the husband here. But apparently they kept trying to trick this guy into watching Kevin Spacey movies. Their masterpiece, of course, being in Seven, when Kevin Spacey isn't even billed. And so they, 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 you can search it on YouTube. This guy, 
just loses his mind when they're like halfway into seven and Kevin Spacey appears on screen. Yeah, it's a good reveal of Kevin Spacey, too, because if you're familiar with seven, you know, he walks up and it's like you see him from the back and he's got the bloody hands. and He goes, detective. And then it like slowly pans to show his face. And I've always loved this idea of like the, this ongoing just challenge to try and get this guy to watch Kevin Spacey movies. So for me, this is like a positive version of this is that Brian always gets me to watch John C. Riley movies. Whenever John C. Riley appears, boom, it's like a positive reaction instead of a negative reaction. I can't believe he did it again. He got me to watch a John C. Riley movie and I didn't know it. <laughs> that was my reaction to this film, too. I love surprise John C. Riley movies. Out of nowhere. It could be literally any genre. Yeah, Boogie Nights was one for me, and this was definitely another. It's like, suddenly, here's big, goofy Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, and I love it. I always love it. John C. Riley's one of my favorites. Uh, so here he's playing the trod-upon, overlooked husband. Who, I mean, he's he's married up, for sure, in terms of looks. But with that, perhaps, comes his feelings of inadequacy, invisibility. Right, he's... As the movie comes along, it becomes more and more clear he's bending over backwards, even at the cost of his own dignity, for the sake of Renee Zellweger. Right. But here he has a moment of backbone, because he's telling the story of how, well, he was a burglar and I shot him. Uh, just suppose he would have violated her or something. You know what I mean? Violated? Yeah, I know what you mean. Or something. <laughs> but then he realizes that this is... Somebody that his wife knows. Somebody that he has met who, like, gave them a good deal on furniture. Wink, wink to the wife. And he's, like, putting together the pieces. And now is when I think we should talk about how these musical numbers, for the most part, are presented in the movie. Which is that, and we talked a little bit about it last week, but it alternates between, like, a gritty presentation of the real world of the 30s. So everything's, like, kind of sepia tone, but otherwise realistic and then it will keep cutting back and forth to some type of theatrical performance and we get a variety of different styles but so here you've got roxy singing like a torch song where she's basically singing about how she loves the husband but it's in like patronizing terms of how oh he'll do anything for me uh, but then as we're seeing the real world scene of Amos talking to the police and gradually figuring out that he's had a cuckold's horns placed on his brow, he wises up and blames it on Roxy, because obviously we know she's the one who really shot the guy. And he's gradually getting angrier. I don't care if she swings. Right. Just building up that John C. Riley manic energy. <laughs> yup but then her song turns on a dime to now she's insulting him she's she's angry too and i just can't oversell the editing in this movie i really think it's edited very well the way that it goes back and forth it's it's really clever to me it's on the verge of being too disorienting like all the hops but did it win the best editing oscar it did Okay, yeah, because overall it's like a, a masterclass of like hopping between these different realities. And some of the segments are just breathtaking. It's like so ingenious 
the way that it, it's it bounces back and forth and you know editing is more than just we go from scene a to scene b like good editing in the sense that it was defined in the 1920s by the soviets is like editing gives you ideas about its characters and the themes of the story and i would say when this movie is firing on all cylinders it is absolutely doing that like the editing is in itself an art form like conveying really interesting ideas and like engaging you just solely on that merit of its craft totally agree but now the blame is squarely pinned on roxy and she gets taken off to jail and she gets a cell on what's called murderous row so this is where all the lady killers are killers who are ladies and so she's settling into her cell and this is when we get the cell block tango which i think you said is this one of the songs you had seen before you watched the film dan yeah, this is one I'd seen, and I'd seen at least one parody of it, too. So I was pretty familiar with, with it. Yeah, it seems like for whatever reason, this is really the number that the zeitgeist seized on. Like, there's a Team Star Kid parody of this one. And it's very compelling in terms of the art design. I mean, there's like a big thing they wheel out that's it's like a jailhouse wall broken up into a bunch of cells and it's lit red. And so you have these silhouettes of women kind of like pole dancing on the jail bars and you just see the silhouettes. And what's going on in this song is all these killers are telling their stories of what led them to be in jail. It starts and ends with each of the murderers like chanting a word that is part of their story. So I believe it's pop, six, squish, uh-uh, Cicero, lip shit. And they chant these things over and over. Already, I mean, if you're a dedicated listener, you know I'm not the biggest fan of repetition in music. But what bugs me about this song is that the words that are selected have different levels of importance in the stories that they're telling. Like, maybe it would make sense if, like, this was the the object of obsession. Like, if this was really the most important part of their story, that it would make sense to me that they were chanting it this way. But it's not, at least not the way that I see it. Did you, <laughs> are you as invested in this song, Dan? I can see what you're saying. It's a little bit of a disorganized song. And there was a couple of them, or at least one of them, where I, even after they told the story, I was like, wait, what was the connection to the thing that she said? Right, because like at least the squish, she never says squish. She talks about stabbing a guy, and presumably it's the sound of the stabbing, but she never says it. Right. But didn't, I gotta say, did not bug me all that much. I mean, I don't know. Like, to me, that's... Just the words they say is like, it's a rhythm. It's like the instrument, you know, it's the beat. It's the groove. And so the content aspect that you're talking about didn't bug me all that much. And I think that's not, I think the reason that this song is kind of zeitgeisty is more about like the, I'm not, I'm trying to think what the right phrase is, but like the kind of satirical take on feminism empowerments, like turned into this over the top violent thing comically tragic comically almost just that i think part of the reason in general that this movie was so zeitgeisty is because of the way that it 
that it like turned, you know, these characters who would typically be not the empowered characters, these women and like made them into the ones controlling the situation in this, this kind of over the top dramatic way. And I think this song best encapsulates at least that idea. And I also think it's got the, the earwormiest of the tunes and also just maybe not the best, but like the most instantly iconic framing. The way that it like basically uses the prison cell bars as like poles for pole dancing. And they're like in these really interesting outfits that are like black leather that are like halfway between a stripper's outfit and like a prison garb. Although probably closer to the stripper garb than the prison garb, but just kind of a really interesting look. So I I can see why this one kind of is what's stuck with people. Okay. Yeah, I I can see that. It just, it bugs me. It's never stopped bugging me that like Catherine Zeta-Jones is chanting Cicero, which is the name of the hotel where she found the husband and the sister in bed together. When, I don't know, it just seems like for pretty much all of them, there's were other words I would have picked if this is what you wanted to do. Chant chant a word that's like pivotal to the story. But I guess it's it's rhythm as a building block. But it gets repeated so many times. They're like Beyonce stepping around, chanting these things in between their verses, and it just I, I don't know. It's too 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 Yeah. Inconsistent for these specific words to like be their totems for my way of thinking. But Okay. One more thing I wanted to say about this number. One thing we talked about with this movie being a strength, and I agree, is the editing overall. But I think within some of the numbers, like once we're kind of showing the actual musical components, I feel like the editing is a little try hard to the point that it diminishes the immersion in the musical number itself. Like I can't even see the way that they're dancing because the camera swinging around so much and really short cuts. I think Moulin Rouge kind of pioneered this style and got a lot of acclaim. I haven't actually seen Moulin Rouge, but that's just what I know from reputation. But as, as much as I love the way that it hops between the realities, I think some of the editing within the number loses the appeal of like the choreography and the, the mise-en-scene a little bit by all of the effort it's putting into being artsy and kinetic and all that. Hmm. That definitely can be a problem with recent musicals. Like we don't get musicals shot anymore the way they were in the sixties. You know, the big crowd scenes like in Oliver, uh, Portobello road and bed knobs and broomsticks, like uh, thank you very much in Scrooge. We just don't get the, the street filling long takes of big choreography, but um, Oh yeah. And no, I don't have another sense. And not to make the goods, the high school musical podcast, but I watched high school musical two with my daughters this past week. And I think I mentioned either last week or the week before that I had watched high school musical one. So we're, we're going through the trilogy and Kenny Ortega, the director of the high school musical series, he's really good at this. So to me, it was like a contrast. You always get a real sense of these big numbers of like where everyone is and what the choreography is. And it's just a real talent of his. And I feel like Billy Marshall or what's the guy's name who directed that? Yeah, Rob Marshall. I feel like he didn't quite hit the ceiling for uh, how powerful the musical numbers could be, at least some of the time. Some of the times I think it's just breathtaking. 
And some of the times I feel like it gets a little bit lost in its choppiness. Okay. Yeah, I would not say that the biggest selling point of this movie is the choreography by any means. But I, I'm really taken by, like, how you said the editing makes it more than the sum of its parts. Like, I, I really like the uh, the interplay between the, the real world and the theatrical world. Yeah, I really like that too, for sure. At this prison, the uh, the lady murderers are under the watch of a corrupt warden played by Queen Latifah. And she sings a song to the effect of, basically, she'll do anything for you if you can get some money for her. So... You basically want to be selling your story to the people. You want to be building up your prestige and your persona to become a, a publicly known quantity. And she'll help you do it if you cut her in on the side. Yeah, Queen Latifah rules. Uh, I think she's awesome. And she's good here. The one thing that surprised me, so there's a long history of women's prison movies, basically in the exploitation genre. Uh, having like strong elements of the prison wardens basically being sexual oppressors with like strong lesbian undertones or perhaps overtones in, in some cases. And, you know, she gets like a sultry intro number. And I thought that that was going to be more of a theme. But like the uh, the sexual dynamic with the Queen Latifah character was toned down from what I expected from when we first met her. Sure. There's a lot of double entendres in the song that you think she's going to be more grabby. Yeah. But it's it's really just about opportunism in general. Right, for sure. And wouldn't you know it, Velma Kelly's here too. So now we've got Renee Zellweger meeting Catherine Zeta-Jones face to face. And at least at the beginning, Velma is the queen bee of the cell block. She's the highest profile prisoner. And we learn that she's being represented by star defense attorney Billy Flynn. This guy has apparently never lost a case defending a female client. So think Saul Goodman. Think, I want to say Jackie Childs, but that's the Seinfeld parody of the real guy, Johnny Cochran, from the OJ trial. But it's a, a showy, flamboyant, theatrical defense attorney, here played by Richard Gere. So have you seen Richard Gere in other films, Dan? I've seen him a couple of times. I do have a good Richard Gere anecdote. Because of this anecdote, he's someone I've always had a fondness for. So I'll say that I've seen him in Pretty Women, or Pretty Woman. And then I've seen, I saw The Runaway Bride when I was a kid. That was like the main thing I associated him with, was The Runaway Bride. Where he's kind of like a hot silver fox type guy. Anyways, when I was in seventh grade... There was this girl named Ashley, which I think is generic enough of a name from our our age group that I could say that without uh, outing any one person. I, there was a lot of Ashleys in my grade. I don't know about you, Brian. And this girl, Ashley, definitely had a crush on me. And there were not too many of those through my years in education. So, you know, all the times that I at least that I ever knew of them are, are special memories. You know, times that I felt sense of being wanted, you know. Sure. Um, anyways, when I did not know that she had a crush on me, I had like a really good conversation with her. It was actually at a district band audition. I think we were both there like practicing, waiting for our, our audition. 
and she told me that she thought I looked like Richard Gere. And I, I like I was trying to place do I actually look like Richard Gere? I think my nose is shaped similar to him. Like I think that's the biggest connection. And we're both kind of white guys with dark eyes and dark eyebrows. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I overall look that much like Richard Gere, but you know, if you're going to have a, someone say you have a celebrity doppelganger, you could certainly do worse than Richard Gere. And so I'll forever be grateful for Richard Gere for, for being what some girl in seventh grade thought I looked like. Nice. Well, I think you look like Andrew Garfield. That's interesting. That's what I would go Andrew with. Garfield. Okay. I mean, I'll tell, take that one too. And, um, uh, I myself have heard Dante from clerks. So that's uh that's me if if you're out there and you just hear a voice. <laughs> um or uh, I've also heard Anton LaVey, the uh Satanist writer. I don't know who that is. Okay, well, look up pictures of these people and uh form your own opinions, listeners, since we're just a voice on the radio. I'm looking up Anton LaVey now. <laughs> okay, all the pictures I'm seeing, he's got a shaved head. I've never seen you with a shaved head. Yeah, I'm not bald. But I can see it. Yeah. I can see it. <laughs> I'll say that Richard Gere in this movie was like a revelation to me. I have not seen him in anything else, I don't think. But he's just electric. And he didn't even get an Oscar nomination. I was very surprised. Yeah, he's terrific in this. I really enjoy, like, sleazy defense attorney characters in general. Um, or maybe a better way to say it would be plucky defense attorneys like uh i mean i i love just courtroom dramas where you're you're watching what is the defense attorney going to come up with you know like a few good men is that the title yeah a few good men tom cruise jack nicholson i just watched that a couple months ago yeah my cousin Vinny. there's lots of great defense attorney films yeah but he, he's especially flamboyant and it's only boosted by the fact that we get these cutaways to the theater numbers he gets some of the most inventive num numbers, which definitely helps his standing in the film. We should do a top five defense attorneys at some point. That would be a fun one. Oh, that would be good. So Velma's got Billy Flynn's counsel. Richard Gere is representing her. And Queen Latifah says, well, you know, Roxy, Renee Zellweger, if you want to have a good chance of being acquitted, you'd better get covered by Billy Flynn, too. And so she's got to come up with some money or boost her fame, one or the other. So what ultimately happens is Amos, the husband, John C. Riley, manages to get some money together and pay enough for a retainer on Billy Flynn. Every time that Amos did something to like humiliate himself for Renee Zellweger's character, it was like a stab in the gut. It was like, oh, come on, man get keep the backbone but he he just kept doing it nope but it was an excuse to see john c Riley on screen so so that's a good point so yeah. mixed feelings every time so now both roxy and velma are covered by billy flynn and we get a building rivalry because now roxy's vying to kind of be the it girl the killer du jour and works bit by bit, drawing Flynn's attention away from Velma Kelly. We get my personal favorite number when Billy Flynn and Roxy head out into a crowd and deliver a press conference. 
Uh, I shouted this song out last week when we were talking favorite music numbers because uh, this one is introduced as a press conference rag. And it's when Billy gathers together some sympathetic journalists and he is spinning a tale for these journalists to spread around. Basically that Roxy started out as a virtuous, he calls her a convent girl, but that she was corrupted by the influence of jazz and liquor. And that she was trying to come clean, trying to go back to her husband, but that Fred Casely was angry and, and came at her. And so she had to defend herself with the gun, but they both reached for it. And the way this is presented is it's, it's cutting back and forth between gear giving the press conference and um, Roxy answering questions as well to a ventriloquist act where Richard Gere has got Renee Zellweger on his lap as a ventriloquist dummy. So she's like wooden. She's all made up to have like a porcelain doll face or a wooden face. And um, he's jerking her around. And even the reporters are presented as puppets, like marionettes on strings. Right. This is pretty mind-blowing. I was with you on this one being terrific. Absolutely. It's got all, so many things going on here. Uh, I mean, the the sheer... This is one of the ones where they got the choreography right, or at least at the beginning when uh, Renee Zellweger is playing like the the ventriloquist doll, and she's got like these like really robotic, uh, stiff movements, and she's lip syncing along to Rich Richard Gere singing, just really clever and really cool looking. And then yeah, you have like the dancing reporters in the background like doing their photography flashes in time and stuff, and. Just lots of really cool and clever stuff going on in this one. And this song is pretty catchy. It's like, the gun, the gun, the gun, they both reach for. It's like, it's it's cool. Right. And as Richard Gere's control over the audience of reporters is growing, we see like the puppets all stand up and start dancing. And of course, they're like tapping their hands up and down. And that gives way to typewriters that they're actually writing their stories on. And this sequence, the movie as a whole, but especially this, this sequence, has so many great matches on action as it's cutting between the different realms. So we've got, like, the sob sister, Mary Sunshine, played by, I think her name is Catherine Baranski. You know, she's like, gets up to ask her question, and she's jerked up on her strings to say, Oh, but you... Oh, what does she say? understandable understandable yes it's perfectly understandable comprehensible comprehensible not a bit reprehensible it's so defensible so they're being won over by this argument and she's like dancing as if she's a marionette like moving her arms like a pinocchio doll you know yeah and eventually it gets to the point that there's actually a giant Richard Gear looming over everybody, operating them on marionette strings. Just really cool. This is also the moment when the movie smacks you across the face that it is a capital S satire. It, it had occurred to me that I didn't really like any of the characters except John C. Riley. Um, you know, other than just their sheer charisma, of course. But... Then I was like, oh, okay. We're, it's making fun of everyone, and it's making fun of the system. I get it now. 
I mean, maybe that was obvious earlier in the film, but this is when it really clicked for me. Yeah, this is like the the biggest Zenith moment of that. Uh, But we get some others, too. For sure. If you're really into this song like I am, there's a couple other good performances on YouTube that I would recommend you check out. One is titled, like, Best Performance Ever, which is maybe a little big for its britches, but it's a it's a pair of high school actors who do a really, really good job with it, pretty much copying the choreography from the movie, but really good performances. And my favorite one that I found getting ready for the song selections last week was a version by the Korean cast. And what really drives that one home is the dude is actually doing ventriloquism. Like Richard Gere is not trying to not move his lips. It's it's more reliant on the editing to cut to Renee Zellweger's puppet face. But this Korean actor is actually ventriloquizing. That sounds pretty awesome. Have you ever? How much ventriloquy have you done yourself, Brian? Oh, I'm no good at it. It's it's hard. Yeah, I learned a couple of the tricks. Like you don't say the M sound, m. Mm-hmm. You say the N sound, n. And I don't actually do any ventriloquy, but what I do a lot of is posing for pictures while I'm trying to order toddlers to stand still and smile. So that's where I've gotten my practice. Stand still and snile. (laughs) That kind of stuff. Yeah. You got to avoid any bilabial words. So no B, no M, no P. That's right. I think Doug funny when he was practicing, he's saying the doy dances the desk at all or something like that. <laughs> it's not easy. Shout out to people who are good at it. Like uh, Terry Fader, when he won season two of America's Got Talent, I was very happy. But yes, as per the satire, Roxy Hart now has the, the ears and hearts of the people. And she's quickly eclipsing the fame of Velma Kelly. And so Catherine Zeta-Jones is kind of gritting her teeth, shaking her fist. I'll get you. But at one point, it seems like Roxy is going to get knocked off her own perch because we get one scene where suddenly Lucy Liu is in the mix. And she is this Hawaiian heiress character who has just committed triple murder. So what this had me feeling like was uh, the... Simpsons episode where Apu has octuplets and they're the talk of the town until suddenly somebody has nine babies. (laughs) Wait a minute, you killed three people? And all the cameras and all the journalists run out the door. But then Roxy's able to win them back by claiming that she is pregnant. You know, she swoons. Oh, I just hope the baby is safe. I was still thinking about Lucy Liu. She's on screen for like two and a half minutes and I probably said, whoa, out loud, like, I don't know, 15 to 20 times watching this movie. And like three of them were in that two and a half minutes that Lucy Liu was on screen. She's like a lightning bolt there for, for just a minute. But we get a scene of Amos and Richard Gere meeting in uh, the lawyer's office. And Billy Flynn angers Amos by insinuating that this child that Roxy's having isn't his. And also, he, a running gag is he keeps forgetting Amos's name. He keeps calling him Andy. <laughs> Just repeatedly humiliating poor John C. Riley, who gets a song here, which is about how he is see-through. It's called Mr. Cellophane, and he puts on like a Charlie Chaplin tramp-style outfit. It's tough to find the right words 
to describe how excited I was when I realized that John C. Riley was getting his own song here. I was so happy. Yeah, he's good. I love John C. Riley. He's he's uh, singing. He's got some charm, and, and I don't know. He he carries himself despite being the schluck. What's the word? Schlep. I don't know. Schmuck. Schmuck. Whatever the Yiddish word is for the loser. Right. Uh, he he's got his moment in the sun here. Yeah, John C. Riley's a good singer. He's a good performer in general. Uh, I've actually seen him in concert. I was at a bluegrass festival, and he had a bluegrass group. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. But uh, you got to watch Walk Hard, man. It's a whole John C. Riley musical biopic. One of my favorites. Uh, it, it may foretell what rating this movie's going to get. We'll see. But um, the stakes, though, in our story are raised when the one murderer who in her cell block tango vignette swore that she was innocent gets executed. This is a Hungarian immigrant, so she doesn't, doesn't really speak English. The only thing she keeps saying is not guilty. And actually, they say she's the first woman ever to be hanged in Illinois at this point. So suddenly everybody's, you know, catching their breath. Oh, man, this could be real. This could be me if things don't go right. And I like this, the number that we have when they're getting ready to hang her. It's doing another like cross cut between a fantastical theater version and the reality of it. And she's a ballerina getting in a harness to like be lifted up into the air her 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 grand moment you know her apotheosis on screen or i guess on stage yep and then as the noose tightens she disappears yeah this moment kind of illustrates again the story's satire as a whole the moral of the whole thing is that you can get away with murder but only if you can successfully manipulate society so it's yeah it's it's kind of girl power but power to do horrible things right it's like it's all glamour and sex and money and celebrity being more important than anything else but in sort of like a a humorous empowering sort of way also Mm -hmm. roxy's trial finally rolls around and we get just some more great richard gear moments he gives this performance where he's singing a song called Razzle Dazzle, talking about how defense attorneying is all showboating. It's all misleading and confusing. And this is a circus song. So we get everybody in circus outfits, and he's got this suit that's all covered in red sequins. That's how you know Brian's going to like it. Yeah. Uh, I showed my hand with this movie. This is definitely a Brian movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I didn't even think about that, but it's got about six things in it. They're like, okay, that's a Brian movie. Hey, John C. Riley. Hey, it's a musical. Hey, there's circus stuff going on. It just kept, keeps piling up from a Brian perspective. And and this one, maybe more than any other, is like the the overlay between the real and the theater world are very like one to one. It's almost like a, a viewmaster or something that you're like flipping a layer of transparency on and off. Because the circus ring is like still the courtroom and there are like all these circus dancers who are like crawling over everybody, all the uh, the judge and the witnesses. And it's it'll like, you know, cut to the real courtroom where you don't see them and then cut to the circus courtroom where you do. Uh, so it's almost like having like a special vision or something like infrared where sometimes you see the circus people and sometimes you don't pretty cool 
and a lot of great lines in this song. Uh, I think my favorite is, Give them a show that's so splendiferous. Row after row will grow vociferous. Just a lot of great internal rhyme in those lyrics. Right. And uh, But also just really driving home the point that it's like they're going to get up and they're going to voice their approval. Vociferous is just a great word. Yeah, this, it's a fun one. This is, I would say, the number where Richard Gere gets to... Well, I was going to say show his chops the most, but he really gets, he gets maybe the most numbers, honestly. I mean, maybe second behind Renee Zellweger. Yeah. I mean, Richard Gere gets like three, arguably four solo numbers, which for him not even to be nominated, it's like, this guy is like the breakout star of the movie to me. Yeah. And and he's, he's carrying them too, you know? Yeah. I can't begrudge Catherine Zeta-Jones and we could talk more about our good things and not so good things. I mean, goddamn, if I said, whoa, 20 times, like half of them were something that Catherine Zeta-Jones was doing on screen. I think she's awesome in this. She just pops off the screen. Yeah, she does have really engaging eyes. Like every time she opens her eyes with intensity, you're drawn in. Yeah, completely agree. And she gets like thick eyeliner for a lot of her stuff. So only emphasizing her eyes for sure. One highlight for me during this razzle-dazzle scene, the circus number, is that Flynn brings Amos up to the witness stand, and he actually remembers his name. He says, now Amos. And he says, yes, Amos, that's right. (laughs) And he actually convinces Amos that suddenly he is the father now. And so there's this big swell of sentimentality from the crowd. Oh, they're going to get back together. They're going to raise this child. But as the trial wears on, uh, we get some wheeling dealing behind the scenes because Velma is concerned that if she doesn't have the limelight, she's not going to be acquitted in her own trial. And so she is scheming with Mama Morton, the uh, Queen Latifah character, of what can she do to raise her own profile? And... Somehow they dig up this diary supposedly belonging to Roxy. And so in the next scene, Velma Kelly is on the witness stand presenting this in court. And Roxy's alleged diary paints her in a much more villainous light, a much more culpable light. But Richard Gere gets another number suddenly. <laughs> and it's, it's not him singing. Uh, it's introduced as a tap dance. So the the theatrical bit of this is him tap dancing while in the real world, he's delivering rapid fire witness questions and tearing apart the validity of this diary, because his argument is that the way that it's worded strongly suggests Roxy didn't write it. It's got a bunch of, you know, purple prose, highly educated verbiage that doesn't match her style. He says, this sounds like it was written by a lawyer, insinuating that it was planted by the prosecution. Right. It's like he gets this big spiel in that made me think of my cousin Vinny, uh, or actually both my cousin Vinny and A Few Good Men, two movies already mentioned, where the judge is like, you're in contempt because he does this big dramatic flourish accusing the prosecutor of fabricating the evidence. Yep. Big dramatic moment just as he's reaching the peak of his tap dance that he's doing. 
or I don't know if he's actually doing it, but somebody's tap dancing and it's it's ascribed to him and it's it's pretty cool. He, I think he's doing some of it, but some of the more elaborate numbers, I think you just see the legs. So I was guessing it was some some double trickery in there. Yeah, I would agree. But he's had his big moment. The jury is swayed and they deliver their verdict that she's not guilty. Roxy is acquitted. Now Amos comes up. He's like, oh, now we can finally be together. We can raise the baby. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, are what? No, the baby is fake. There was never a baby. <laughs> Which, of course, we the viewers had pretty much determined from the beginning. Yeah. It was a little weird. i probably just dumb, but I was wondering if it was like trying to make us think there actually was a baby, and I actually kind of believed it for a minute. I was like, who's the dad going to be? Is it going to be Casely? Is there going to be a twist where it's actually Richard Gere or something like that? And then, and then as this bit was going on, I was like, oh, Okay, I get it. It's fake. But it, it definitely does not... Again, maybe I'm just dumb, but it left just enough ambiguity for a bit that I, I was scratching my head trying to figure out where it was going to go with it. Okay. All right. Yeah. So when she swooned at the start, when she needed her like surge of popularity back, I knew it was fake then. Uh -huh. But you're right. There's so much attention put on it for so long that I like... I, at least the first time I watched the movie, I started to sway back the other way of, oh, maybe this is something. Maybe this is real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's it's not, though. Right. And <laughs> poor Amos. Yeah. And so they, they split up. Poor John C. Riley. John C. Riley is rebuffed, but don't worry. I'm sure he'll show up in some other movie someday. I was disappointed because I wanted him to have some comeuppance, but he doesn't. He just kicks gets kicked to the ground one more time. Yeah, he goes back to sleep in his pile of bricks off screen like wreck ralph right but just as suddenly the public forgets about roxy because there's a woman outside on the courthouse steps who kills somebody out there wikipedia says it's her lawyer i don't know if we discern that in the moment that we see him but now here we go the cycle's begun all over again there's a new hot murder fresh on the press yeah this moment was another moment that was kind of confusing for me because it's at least edited to make it seem like it happens like right at the foot of the courthouse, which again, if you're killing the lawyer, that makes sense. But my brain was like, oh, one of the characters we know is killing someone. And then the woman is a, a blonde woman from kind of like a long shot, not a super long shot. And you can tell it's not Renee Zellweger, but it's just enough of a resemblance that at least my brain was like, hold on, am I supposed to recognize this person? who just shot someone. But in fact, it's just some rando that we don't know. Right. No, it's just it's just somebody new. It, it almost gave me vibes of not quite the same, but kind of like Return of the Living Dead, where it's like, it's just all going to repeat. It's just all going to keep moving on. And uh, yeah, it's, it's always progressing. Um, but we jump forward in time a bit. And so now Roxy's struggling, trying to make it on her own as a performer. Uh, not really having success, but she gets approached by Catherine Zeta-Jones. Oh, she also got acquitted. Billy Flynn worked his magic for her, too. Oh, something I've not said is that it's not quite magic. Yeah, because uh, he admits at the end of the trial after Roxy has been acquitted that he himself was the one who planted that diary. So it was written by a lawyer. Right. And this is clever because it, it turns out to be a way for him to get both Renee Zellweger and Catherine Zeta-Jones off because Catherine Zeta-Jones, 
she got off in exchange for the evidence. And then he also was able to successfully turn it back on the prosecutor to also get Renee Zellweger off. So now both of them, but the net result was that everybody got acquitted due to that one act. I was like, oh, that is kind of a clever twist there at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody's stacking the deck in their favor at all times here, except John C. Riley. <laughs> Our cellophane man. Yep. Uh, but uh, Velma shows up also free and she proposes that they join forces with their gimmick being that it's two singing lady murderers and there'll be a hit. And sure enough, we see them doing their duo act uh, to a packed house at the very end of the film. And uh, as the camera's rolling by the, the audience, we see that basically all the other characters are out there cheering, including a bunch of other murderers who have presumably also been acquitted. And uh, like Queen Latifah's out there, Richard Gere's out there, everybody cheering on Velma and Roxy. And this number is, I really like this final number. First of all, both actresses are absurdly attractive in their like flapper dresses with this elaborate dance number that they're doing. But I also like the way that this one was shot in that it was more like a typical musical. It held steady enough that you could actually see what the choreography was. Although very much like uh, on a stage intentionally. So they're not doing all that much stuff with space, but, ju but just kind of a fun little number here at the end. Yeah, we get a few um, solo numbers, especially from Renee Zellweger, that are more traditionally presented, more long shots of her singing. Right. And that's Chicago from 2002. Yeah. So, Dan, some thoughts that you want to lay down. What did you like? What did you maybe not like? that we haven't talked about yet that's going to influence your verdict. Yeah. So for me, the biggest strength is during the musical numbers, these elaborate mise-en-scenes that get set up, just really interesting, cool, clever setups where the music theme in like this sort of fantasy showbiz world that's maybe going on in the character's head or maybe it's just kind of an abstract representation it's kind of alternating with this this more gritty reality. Just the design of all of them, the juxtaposition of the editing there, like seeing those two things together. That to me is like the most individually interesting thing that's going on in this movie. I should say, I say individually, but it's really like not an individual thing because everyone is different and everyone is just really clever, really well-produced just some really terrific and and I've said breathtaking where you just you your eyes are glued to the screen as this is going on great stuff for some of these musical numbers yeah I'm with you there and then the other big thing for me is the cast there's not a miss in the cast for me I really love everyone Zellweger is great as the the lead she commands the screen Zeta Jones is just all charisma man she's popping off Every time that she gets a chance, like all the supporting actors, John C. Riley, Queen Latifah, Dominic West, a couple others. There's no one where you're not excited to see them on screen. Yeah. And it keeps being surprising. It's like suddenly a new character will show up. It's like, oh, what are they going to do? And then they do a good job. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to shout out again the editing. I know it had um, mixed results for you, but... I was blown away the first time I sat down and watched this movie. Like this has some of my favorite editing in any movie. 
It's one where I had to like immediately go and look and see, did, wait, did this get the editing Oscar? And it did. Um, it really worked for me. Some songs more than others, I guess, but like especially in They Both Reached for the Gun and Razzle Dazzle, which are the ones that I feel it, it really kind of goes nuts with it. But I think it serves the satire in both cases. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, when when this movie is firing on all cylinders with its editing, it's it's really something to behold. Doing really innovative stuff, for sure. And I like the satire element. I think it delivers on the premise and is true, it sounds like, to its original 1926 iteration. Like, it was true when it was written, and I, I think it has things to say today as well in our pervasive media culture. Oh, I mean, that's, for me, another strong point is, you know, I kind of have, the more satires I watch, the more I realize that I don't like not liking most of the characters in a movie, which is, you kind of see a lot of in satires. But this one, even if, you know, I have some mixed reaction to that, I completely agree more than ever that it's kind of like network. I mean... Just this this idea that ratings, 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 headlines, that's what matters. Uh, narrative, whatever the media says goes and whatever the celebrities say is what the media says, whatever the high powered people say is what the media says and how that all trickles down and is like the way the system is run, I would say is more relevant today than ever. And if you like movies that are on the shorter side, I mean, this isn't a short film, but it's short for a musical it's actually less than two hours which is not something you always get when it's a musical theater adaptation yeah agreed do you have anything else to shout out or are you ready for some things that maybe didn't float your boat we can go to the the not so good things what, what were some of yours brian well i'll just say again that i feel mixed towards cell block tango i'm harping on it maybe too much but it's like if you're locked away and you're going to shout one word over and over, it needs to mean something. That's that. I just, I feel that pretty strongly, <laughs> maybe too strongly. I would pick a word that meant something to me. In my humble opinion, you feel too strongly about it, but that's just my opinion. You know, didn't, it didn't bother me. Whatever. It's your, your tastes and your choice. What about you though? I've actually had most of the things I didn't like. I also feel like some of the characters didn't hit their full potential. It's like they came up with a character and kind of a premise, but not a, much for them to actually do. Like the, the reporter character and Queen Latifah, I feel like didn't get as much play as they could have for how interesting their characters could have been for the arcs of our characters. It's like Christine Baranski, like she's a good character and she's got a couple moments, but it, from when we met her, I thought she was going to have like some really pivotal thing to do. And then she kind of didn't really. She was just kind of a supporting thing for a lot of what else was going on. So, you know, the the plotting, therefore, was like not as tight as I thought it was maybe going to be at the beginning. But that's OK, because you're really there more for the spectacle than for anything else. And the way the spectacle ties to some of the themes. So I wouldn't put it as a huge detriment. My one idea for, for telling the story differently is what if you made uh, Renee Zellweger's character from the start, what if you made her likable and kind and like a fresh off the bus, innocent girl who's gradually corrupted throughout the movie? 
I feel like that could have been interesting. And even from a satirical element, that might have been really interesting. You know, it's like she was a nothing when she was good. And then the more that she leaned into her jazz and liquor side, the more she was able to become a hotshot. Oh, I kind of like that. It's like a Breaking Bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could see that working. Although the way that it's presented with nobody quite being likable, I, I think that works in its way, too because they've got a line in the cell block tango song where they say i didn't do it but if i done it how could you tell me that i was wrong it's like everybody in their own mind has got a justification and it's up to it's up to you how much that works for you but at least for some of them it's like maybe i can kind of see it um not all of them i mean there's the woman who shot her lover in the head because he chewed his bubble gum too loud <laughs> yeah it's like i don't quite agree with that one although that's the one that i think she picked the right word because that's what set her off right because the pops i could just imagine her twitching every time she hears a pop yeah the damn pops but uh, i guess my point with that was that at least in velma and roxy's case of why they killed the person it's like there's at least some provocation it's not they're for sure they're not blameless and they did it but like i think the legal system has some ameliorating circumstances built in or what do they what do they call it um something other some other adjective circumstances mitigating circumstances okay where like if you kill in the heat of passion there's some allowances for that sort of thing. Um, for, I mean, Fred Casely is not a saint either. Oh, no. Yeah, definitely not. But uh, nobody's a saint, basically, in this world that we're presented with. Your morality is determined by how much you can make headlines. Yeah. So, Dan, are we ready to open our envelopes? Do we want to talk about Is It Good? Sure. So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale. Ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Tour Day Good, an eight out of eight. Brian, have you have you penciled in your number? I've got it. I'm ready. So is Chicago 2002 good? I really like this one. I think it's a lot of fun to watch. I think it's a great spectacle. I think it's got terrific performances. I think there's a lot of messiness. I think the direction is actually not all that strong. Not a great sense of space and a lot of flatness to it. It kind of feels like, I don't know what Rob Marshall did or whatever his name is, the director. I would bet money, though, that he's directed stage plays before he made this movie because it really feels like someone who is used to thinking more in terms of stage than than film. But that said, some moments are really memorable and special and visually unforgettable. Lots of really clever stuff, great performances, some some kind of darkly funny stuff going on. Uh, Richard Gere is awesome. Loves John C. Riley. Absolutely love the two leads, Zellweger and Zeta Jones. The Z's. Man, I didn't even place that. That they were both Z names. You don't get too many of those unless you're watching zombies. <laughs> so it's a mix of messiness and uh, really compelling content. For me, it's right on the, the fence of a five and a six. I kind of changed my mind three times. And even then, we've been talking today, I've changed my mind three times. I'm going to still land on a very good, just because I think when it's at its peak, it's doing stuff that is really terrifically memorable. 
So I'm going to say Chicago. Very good. Six out of eight. Okay. Acceptable. Not a bit reprehensible. It's so defensible. (laughs) The gun, the gun, the gun. I'm looking at Rob Marshall's Wikipedia article. And uh, yes, it does look like he came from a theater background. Believe it or not, he was a choreographer. You'd think he would pay a little more attention to the choreography and, and showing it on screen. But as far as his other film credits, he directed Pirates of the Caribbean 4. And then some other musicals. It said he did uh, the Disney Into the Woods. He did the Mary Poppins sequel. And he is lined up to direct the live action Little Mermaid. Did he do that one called Nine that was just utterly panned? Uh, It says he did. I don't I've never heard of that. What is that? So it was one of those movies that at the beginning of the year, they just write it as a Oscar favorite. It's got like all the star power and money in the right studio and stuff. And it had just an absolutely horrific production. They got a couple weeks into filming or something, and the lead, I forget who it was, abruptly dropped out. And then Daniel Day-Lewis, who can't really sing, stepped up to be the lead. Who I mean, he's a terrific, he's he's an amazing actor, but it's like, I, it was just kind of out of the blue. And it got really bad reviews at the time. But I, th- I thought I saw that that was one of his filmography i want to see that one out of a morbid curiosity at some point yeah no i'm curious as well but on to the topic at hand back on track this one's an eight for me i don't think it's a surprise to you out there listeners um it had a lot that turned it in its favor and a big part of that is that i didn't know too much about it going in other than it had a a big reputation as a musical i had seen the cell block tango clip But I tossed this one on pretty much just because it was a best picture that I hadn't seen yet. And I knew it was a musical. And it drew me in. And John C. Riley is there. Surprise! That always gives it a big boost. See our Boogie Nights coverage. And and I also mentioned in the Boogie Nights episode that that was a case where I didn't really know too much about the movie going in. And it just clicked for me. I I like the production value here. Big fan of the cast. Uh, I like the variety of theater acts we get when the different songs are presented. Like the the way the tap dance is intercut with the rapid fire courtroom delivery from Richard Gere. All is stuff that, that elevates this movie for me. So it's high up there. I think if I did an updated 100 favorites movies it would be on there somewhere. Nice. Uh, So I'm glad I got to share this one. You gave me a good excuse. I didn't know where I'd throw it into the deck. Uh, But when we were talking songs last time, I I thought this was the time. It's a special one for sure. And I didn't quite have it at the eight, but I still think it's, it's a memorable one, one worth seeing. And man, I love it. I love to hear when uh, we get to whip out that masterpiece rating, that tour day good. So I'm glad this is one that spoke to you, Brian. Thank you for sharing it. Oh, well, thank you for watching. Thanks for giving me an excuse. And that's our coverage this week. Dan, what have you got lined up as the next act? So, Brian, uh, we had to rearrange recording a little bit for this episode a couple times. Uh, I mentioned at our 75th episode, Spectacular, I got a lot going on in my life right now. The big change in my life, I've lived in the same house now I I bought when I was 25, and I will be moving. And the intent is that that will be my quote-unquote forever home, where my daughters live until they graduate high school, so we don't have to move them around schools or anything like that. So, you know, we're packing up all our stuff, getting 
ready, put a whole lot of money into this house, excited to have a little more space, and we're going to have a basement, which we don't have now. And the girls picked the color for their rooms. We painted their bedrooms last weekend. So, yeah, it's been it's been fun. But like I said, a lot of money. And so I wanted to look for a moving or house purchasing related movie. I did think of and pondered Max Keeble's Big Move, which we talked about in our Snow Day episode. And thinking about that had me look up Snow Day again. And I, I shared with you today, Brian, I saw some terrific news. Just best news I heard today. Apparently, they're making a remake of Snow Day, but it's going to be a musical this time. And I, I'm going to be a day one watcher of that one. I think it's coming out on Paramount+. Plus. I might get my free month subscription to Paramount+, Plus to watch the Snow Day musical, assuming this one actually comes out. Uh, I'm diverging from the topic here. What are we going to be watching next week? I decided not to pick that because I wanted something that came with a germane top five associated with it. And so the other moving related movie that I could think of that was not Toy Story was a different Tom Hanks movie, actually. And that is The Money Pit. Brian, have you seen The Money Pit? I've not, but I knew that that was what you were going to say. I've seen the poster. I was able to gather from the title and the picture on the poster what it involved. So when you said movie about buying a house, I before you even said Tom Hanks, I figured, okay, it's got to be that one. So I've been, I've been kind of curious. I, I generally enjoy Tom Hanks films. Uh, so yeah, gl- glad to have a chance to check this one off. And then here's the top five, Brian. Top five Tom Hanks movies. All right. That's what we're going to try to come up All with. All right, I'm ready. I'm going to probably watch a couple others because I've i always been curious also about Joe versus the Volcano. So Yeah, great, great name for a movie, Joe versus the Volcano. The one caveat I'm going to put on the Tom Hanks movie is no Toy Stories. We already talked about Toy Stories. We can just assume that all the good Toy Stories are in their own special realm for those. All right. Yeah, this is going to be fun. All right. Well, th- this should be good. And... Uh, Oh man, I, I'm a, I'm a little disappointed we're not saving our heavy duty Tom Hanks coverage for Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, I wish I had thought of that. But uh, it, it, we'll 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 make it good, and maybe we'll have some leftovers when it's Thanksgiving time. Yeah, Thanksgiving. I've I've never heard that. I, I feel like that could be a tradition every year. You watch as many Tom Hanks movies as you can on Thanksgiving weekend or something. Is that a established tradition? Uh, only in my head. <laughs> until now this is we're birthing our brain children into the world well happy Thanksgiving, brian to you even if it's not actually Thanksgiving, and we'll be talking tom hanks next week on the goods join us again everybody 